Hello and welcome to the Blue Economy Podcast, presented by Rhode Island, the ocean state. I'm your host, David Hirschman, and on this episode, we're talking about competitive sailing, plus a little bit of grant making with 11th Hour Racing. Our guests are Rob McMillan, president and co-founder of 11th Hour Racing, and Michelle Carnavale, the organization's grant program director. Located on the historic Bellevue Avenue in Newport, Rhode Island, 11th Hour Racing is an offshoot of the Schmidt Family Foundation, focused on working with the sailing community and maritime industries to help protect ocean resources. The organization distributes dozens of grants every year and also sponsors its own competitive sailing team, which is gearing up to participate in the ocean race in 2022. Thank you to Rob and Michelle for joining us and thank you for tuning in today. As always, we hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you're listening. And you can learn more about the show at www.blueeconomypodcast.com or by following us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And now here's what we learned about 11th Hour Racing. So great. You know, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Um, so maybe first give me a little bit of background about 11th Hour Racing. Um, I guess when when was the company founded? What was its mission? And I guess how have you evolved over time? Uh, sure, I can I can take that. Uh, 11th Hour Racing has been around since uh, formally since 2010. Uh, the sort of genesis of it was uh, I'm a professional sailor by trade and a sailmaker and was sailing with uh, my fellow co-partners, Jeremy Pochman and Wendy Schmidt. And um, we're talking about environmental issues and um, the Schmitz have a very large family uh, office that does a lot of uh, energy and climate change and agriculture and, and issues like that. And we got speaking on a broad sense of trying to reach a different audience. And it sounds goofy, but said, you know, there's a lot of sports sponsorships and they are just selling like insurance or sneakers or whatever silly thing that we're supposed to buy. It would be great if we were able to use sport as a platform to talk about environmental issues. And, you know, instead of selling products, start selling concepts and ideas and trying to get a behavior change out of that. And again, it sounded a little goofy as we were having a coffee talking about it, but the more we dove in, it seemed like, the sport of sailing as a platform was a great way to talk about ocean health in a in a different way, um, in a in a positive way where we can reach an audience. And sailors, by nature, obviously care about the ocean, or we wouldn't be doing it. Um, and just sort of change the way the dialogue was coming because there was so much information that scientists have that was not reaching the population in a digestible way, and it's become overly. The, the conversation around ocean health and, and climate has become so politicized. We just wanted to strip away that aspect of it. Um, so we became a formal group in uh, 2010, and we started with some small sponsorships um, and some small grants because along with the sponsorship access uh, aspect, we wanted to do a lot of grant work to showcase material improvement in either education services or operations or waste or, and you know, the, that rabbit hole gets deeper and deeper the more we get into it. But it literally sparked of let's reach the general population about ocean health in a, in a different way than it's currently being done. Cool. Well, so how much do you interact with the other kind of Schmidt initiatives like the Schmidt Marine Technology Partners and the Family Foundation and all that kind of stuff? There's a lot of overlap. Um, the Schmidt network, you know, they ha there's entities all around the country. Um, and each one of us has our own unique 
focus, whether it's oceans or, as Rob mentioned, sustainable agriculture or human rights or energy. But there's a lot of collaboration between us um, because we know that all of these systems are very interconnected. Um, And so, like, the role of healthy soil in and sustainable agriculture in creating better water quality and improving rivers and estuaries and bays, uh, as well as the link between like energy policies and deep sea mining and ocean health, or the role that technology and innovation plays um, in, you know, whether it's understanding our oceans or uh, new technologies to become more resilient. Um, We tend to work a lot, either co-funding projects or learning from each other or our grantees and just kind of really building a more comprehensive view of how to tackle these really huge issues like climate. Cool. Well, so, you know, you're, you're headquartered in on Bellevue Avenue in Newport, um, which is obviously a hotspot in the global sailing ecosystem. Um, but besides that, what, uh, what about Rhode Island made you want to found the organization here? Is it just, Rob, you were just here and, and. Well, I mean, there is, there is some truth to that. I'll be honest. You know, there was a, uh, it is our backyard. So <laughs> let's take care of that. Um, and it is, you know, you, you mentioned it, it's the hub of sailing, both recreationally um, and certainly professionally. Rhode Island's got a huge history in uh, the Marine trades and we are the ocean state, even though it's a bay. Um, you know, so it's uh, it just seems like the right place to be, and it's it's very relatable. A lot of the projects that um, we've done resonate well with the population here, um, and it there's a genuine community buy-in, um, and it's you know, Rhode a funny place. It's it's small enough where we're not the biggest impact, but it's also small enough where we can have an impact. You know, we can we can speak to an engaged government or an engaged population and it resonates, you know, we all know each other. And some, I'm sure we're related somehow. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, well, so maybe before we uh, start talking about the grant making kind of stuff, um, can you tell me about the 11th hour racing team itself? You know, sure. are, are you preparing to enter the ocean race in uh, 2022, I believe? Yep. Uh, what does your schedule look like now and how are you preparing? I guess, how does, how, how does one like prepare for something like this? Uh, sure. So yeah, we're, uh, we're scheduled for the next iteration of the ocean race. Uh, originally it was supposed to start this year, but obviously given the last 12 months of the world, uh, that was postponed for a year. Uh, it kind of gave us an extra year of opportunity in terms of racing, uh, ocean racing in France is, uh, is a huge mainstream sport. You know, I think 85% of the population follow it similar to football here. It's, oh. it's really, uh, activity. And um, so the team is based out of there and we have a technology partner and mayor concept who's one of the big uh, teams there. So we currently have our existing boat. Uh, they will be doing a race called the ocean race Europe, which starts in May, which is COVID dependent, um, you know, Spain, uh, to me, France to uh, Spain, to Portugal to, I believe finish in Genoa, something along those lines. We have another boat, um, our new racing boat, which will be the ocean race boat that is being launched in June. And then both boats will be doing um, a race called the Fastnet, which is uh, a huge ocean race in, in the UK. Uh, I'm gonna mispronounce it, so uh, bear with me, the Desifi Azimut race, which is a sort of a training race in France. And then um, one of the pinnacles of the French racing, the Transac Jacques Bob, which is France to, uh, I believe, Guadeloupe this year, which is one of the iconic uh, shorthanded uh, races. Most of the races that 
the team will be doing are shorthanded, meaning uh, double-handed or single-handed. So you know, it's a great year for us from uh, from an outreach standpoint because we can still race, and it's also great training for the ocean race because we'll have two top-tier teams um, for all these races. So um, on one boat will be Charlie and right from here and his co-pilot Pascal, and then uh, it'll be Simon Fisher and Justine. And it's sort of like an even, as long as one of the boats wins, we all win. <laughs> but it's a very active, it, it's really an active year, um, which we feel lucky to have given uh, obviously the COVID situation and what could could be. I, I would imagine that the reason that it's such a popular sport in France uh, has like historical reasons or something like that. But could you ever see a future for comp- competitive sailing as like a high interest sport here in the US? Um, and uh, I, mean, I mean, obviously the major races are popular, but I mean, could, could you see a, a future where like a casual skates fan like I, myself? Could keep up I think it? I do. Um, you know, sailing is incredibly hard to capture sort of the essence of it. Uh, it's one of the more difficult sports because it's relatively slow. You know, if you if you watch an auto race, it's fast. You know, you can relate to, hey, 200 miles an hour is fast. I, dr- I drove my car to work today. I didn't go 200 miles an hour. Sailboat racing is 20 miles an hour, which is like slower than my scooter goes to work. So it, it doesn't resonate in the same way. And the intensity and the power and the technical aspect have been hard to capture. You know, video and drones and streaming services have made that a lot easier to, to get. And that's something that the, the races have really tried to work on um, and make the human aspect of it. You know, the last uh, round the world race, the Vendee, is a single handed race that everybody can look at and say, geez, that seems pretty hard to sail around the world alone for 80 plus days. Yeah. Um, so I could see in certain segments that becoming more popular and with, you know, things like Instagram and, and other media platforms, it, it is more relatable. And I see it becoming a, I don't want to say a mainstream sport, but certainly a, an active niche sport that, you know, similar to like bike racing or skiing or, you know, snowboarding where it, it can capture a broader sense. And then the ocean is so big and that I think everybody relates to it in some sure. way. And we just wanna we want to kind of capture that essence of you maybe not understand it, but everybody's drawn to it. You know, we all came from it. So we all we all want to see it. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely got an opportunity to grow here in the next 10 years or so. And that's part of the long-term aspirations of the team, certainly here in Rhode Island. Cool. Um well, all right. So since 2013, um, according to my notes here, you've awarded 166 grants across not, uh, 79 separate programs. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what the grant strategy is and what types of uh, types of projects you're looking to support? Sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, our grant making centers really on local solutions uh, and around building ocean stewardship advancing sustainable practices, both within the marine industry and the sailing industry, but also coastal communities much more broadly, as well as restoring coastal ecosystems and all the benefits that those healthy ecosystems um, bring us. So for example, one way that we work to build local ocean stewardship through community-based work is through providing grants that provide greater access to kids, you know, younger students to get them out on the water to experience whether it's Narragansett Bay or, you know, Buzzards Bay or the, you know, whatever their local waterway is. Um, Because the fact of the matter is that for millions of kids, 
throughout the U.S. and around the world, they may live, you know, a few feet from the shoreline, but for many kids, they have no real access or opportunity to experience that, whether it's through socioeconomic barriers or other barriers. And so a lot of what our education and experiential education grant making goes towards how do we provide greater access to students regardless of their background? Because we believe that if you can get kids to love and enjoy the waters that surround their community, they're gonna be better stewards for that um, over time. So we do a lot of work around experiential education, but we also try to work on advancing better practices within communities and the marine industry. So everything from how do we get composting um, as a, like a common practice in Newport or you know, the Northeast region, as well as how do you improve resilience in coastal communities to climate change and sea level rise? How do we find solutions for really hard to recycle materials uh, in the marine industry, whether it's fiberglass or shrink wrap plastic that we use to wrap our uh, vessels in? Um, and lastly, how do we support community-based restoration? Um, and nature-based solutions. So how do we build coastal resilience in communities by using nature and restoring it back to its, um, you know, to, to where it what once was um, so that it can provide protection from sea level rise and storm sur surge and all of those impacts. Cool. Well, you know, uh, several of your grantees are in Rhode Island. Uh, but it seems like the list of projects like is all around the country and all around the world. You know, how do you find projects? Do people just come to you or, um, and I guess also is the scope of your grants kind of expanding as you're going? Yeah, I think today I was looking at how many countries we've worked in through our grant making. I think it's 18 different countries thus far. Um, and yeah, as we grow, we are getting, um, more and more requests, especially now um, this past year with the pandemic, there's just so much need um, to support nonprofits um, domestically and internationally. But yeah, Rhode Island and the Northeast will always be a focus for us. Um, primarily, as Rob was saying, we need to lead by example. We want our home state of Rhode Island to be a real leader in this space. Um, but as we do these like round the world, like sailing races, we also are looking for grant opportunities like to, to support local NGOs in each of those cities where um, we'll be traveling around the world. So um, many of our projects come through our website. So if any of your listeners have a good idea that they want to submit, they can go to 11thHourRacing.org. And we have two um, grant submission periods per year. And our next one, I think, is coming up on June 15th. So um, bring your ideas if and you I, have any. And the grants are kind of all sizes, sort of just depending on the project? Yeah, they really range. Uh, we have very small grants that are, you know, like $10,000. But then we go all the way up to 300 500 you know depending on the the project um, we really scale um, the grant to to what the the initiative is all about we tend to start off small but over time you can grow you know that initi initiative into something much larger 
are there any specific organizations or causes that you'd like to spotlight? You know, just, I mean, I, I know you have lots and hard to pick a you know, favorite <laughs> child or whatever, you know, but. Hey, this, yeah. is, this is a tough question, Michelle. Now you're going to get favorites amongst your children. <laughs> I know it. I know there's so much, there's so much good stuff happening in Rhode Island. And I, just like Rob was saying that it, Rhode Island has such an opportunity to lead in sustainability, I think, because of its size. Like we have, we work with a lot of folks to in California, and they're always jealous of how Rhode Island and our lawmakers and our senators are so accessible, right? Like that's such a strength. Yeah. Um, and so like some of the things that I'm really excited about in Rhode Island specifically are, you know, we're working on this big regional project focused on composting and this link between healthy soils and healthy seas. Um, and so that's a practice that anybody can do and we need to make that be more uh, a part of our everyday lives um, because the fact of the matter is a huge portion of our waste that's going into the landfill could be composted um, and by composting you're not only reducing your carbon footprint keeping that uh, methane from being produced in the landfill but you're also contributing to healthy soils which mean that you don't need to use chemical fertilizer which runs off into the bay and causes all of these water pollution issues as well so you know simple behavior change things like that that we can all um, you know adopt into our everyday lives we're also supporting harvest cycle which is a groundworks rhode island project in Providence. So that's another composting initiative that we're really excited about. Um, but to get to the, how do we improve the marine industry more specifically, we have a regional initiative to uh, improve shrink wrap recycling, which I mentioned, which is this plastic film that, you know, is everywhere. I feel like now it's getting taken off because it's springtime, but you see boats wrapped in this plastic and it's used too in agriculture and, um, you know, construction. And so we have a initiative with Clean Ocean Access on how to expand recycling access to create a more circular loop for those types of materials, because the majority of it is just ending up in the landfill or being incinerated. And so how do we improve that? But also in uh, East Providence, there is this uh, amazing Living Shorelines project that we helped support last year um, as a way, as an alternative to the traditional like hard infrastructure of cement and, you know, just man-made structures. How do you restore, you know, coastal bluffs and marshes in a way that can protect the shoreline from sea level rise and storm surge while also providing all this habitat. So um, TNC, Rhode that, Island. That's with uh, like recycled uh, materials or I guess what, like what, what do they do differently? So the living shorelines project in East Providence is using um, yet yeah, like restoring uh, marshland in um, this section of the beach, as well as restoring like native grasses up the bluff. Um, as a way to create like natural buffer systems. Okay. So um, it's being used as a, like a learning model for the rest of the region, because traditionally we install like cement seawalls or um, jetties or, you know, those types of hardened infrastructure. And over time, those, you know, take away habitat um, and actually can make uh, storm surge and 
those types of wave impacts a lot worse. So that's a really cool project that was installed last year. Um, Save the Bay, we are supporting a number of salt marsh adaptation projects throughout the state, which is really exciting. And then in Newport, Sail Newport um, has this amazing fourth grade public school program um, where every fourth grader in the public school system gets the opportunity to go out on Narragansett Bay, learn to sail, but have it be incorporated into their school day. This is like such an amazing opportunity um, that many other cities would die for, but the school system, the public school system and Sail Newport have really worked really hard to find a way to weave experiential learning, getting kids out on the bay, regardless of, you know, their background as a way to learn like on the bay and actually learn to, to care for it and its health. So that's really exciting too. Do they do like ecological projects or are they just learning to sail? It's like, it's almost like a PE thing or. No, it's all weaved into like the science. They learn about geology, math. Like it's just completely, they do uh, classroom lessons like that are related to their normal classroom activities at Seal Newport. And then they go out on the water um, where the sailing instructors help to then also uh you know, share and emphasize those points. It's really neat. Awesome. Well, you know, obviously there's a lot to, of work to do when it comes to restoring and protecting the ocean and its resources generally. Um, do you guys feel like we were making significant progress in kind of, I, I mean, I, I feel like there's been a, a bigger focus, especially over the past, like say five years on the effect that the ocean has on climate change and kind of the importance of uh, kind of protecting various species in the ocean, keeping the ocean cleaner. Um, do you think that we're making any progress or do you think we sh- need to make more progress? I don't know. Uh, both. <laughs> um, I do think uh, we are making some progress. You know, some of it's anecdotal, but I can say after being in the sailing industry for 25 years, there's a big shift in how people view the water and the ocean and the importance of the the ocean has on the global health. So that's, that's a real thing that seems to be changing and people's behaviors reflect that. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, we kind of joke like, did we save 0.0061% of the ocean today? Or, you know, cause it's so big and there's so many issues that are, that are facing it. Um, but I do think we're making a change and, and a lot of the grants that we've given are, I think Michelle spoke to this, but they're project-based. We don't typically do general support for organizations. So we want to have a start and end and, and see like that this actually make an impact in a positive way. Um, I think one of the biggest issues with climate change is it seems impossible because it's so big. Sure. But we're very focused on it takes one step at a time, which we somewhat cheekily say is one degree at a time, um, where we're just trying to make steps in the right direction. And it, the more people we get stepping in the right direction, the, the bigger impact that ultimately we'll end up having. So I do think there's been a change in behavior. I think there's um, certainly a desire for people to do things in a better, less negatively impactful way. I haven't met anybody that has come out and say, I really want to screw the ocean up. We need more (laughs) plastic. We need less fish. We need, you know, sea level. Like nobody thinks that. I think it's, we're just trying to showcase positive and successful examples of what we collectively could do differently and arguably better for you know, so I, I think it's it's improving, but there is an awful lot of work to do. And 
Um, as you said, I think people are seeing, well, geez, the ocean really is the, that's the gas pedal for <laughs> climbing. There's nothing, I say this all the time, so Michelle, forgive me, but in the game of rock, paper, scissors, ocean, the ocean's going to win. No matter what, the ocean's going to win. And whether we want to be part of the future or not is going to be how we treat the ocean and that, and the other animals that live in it, basically. So among, among the projects you've done, you know, one thing I often wonder is like, I feel like with uh, climate, people trying to personally help climate change, uh, you often get focused on things like plastic straws or like things that seem kind of small in the grand scheme of things. Like, and I guess I wonder like of the projects that you've supported, what do you think has had the biggest impact? Uh, I think education as a whole has has the potential for the biggest impact. Um, you know, it's a it's a the most difficult metric to come up with because it's it's a twenty year investment. You know, the fourth grade kids that Michelle were speaking to that really haven't had access to the water or any personalization of what it means. You won't know if that was effective, honestly, for decades. You know, and how their behaviors are. In terms of measurable impact, Michelle probably can speak more clearly, but. The composting project is a big one for the state of Rhode Island because we run out of landfill in eight years or so. Oh, wow. 30% of the waste is food waste. So everything that we take out of that system and put into a renewable resource like soil, which has enormous positive impacts for climate um, and, and as a carbon sink, that thing you can actually say is, wow, we've pulled millions of pounds out and how measurable is that? And that behavior change is simple. It takes, you take your plate and instead of going into this waste bin, you go into this waste bin and you have a positive impact with relatively no change in behavior or no material cost. Um, so that one to me really is the easiest to measure. Um, Michelle, you might have a favorite. That no, I agree. I think the composting is huge. Um, and you can tell, David, we're really focused on composting at the moment. Um, but also a lot of the um, the restoration projects that we fund that are really locally led lead to, you know, mangrove restoration, seagrass restoration, salt marsh restoration. If you can restore a healthy um, coastal ecosystem, it will draw down carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for you know hundreds and thousands of years so like being able to engage people in those types of projects might not feel like oh am i really making a big difference but if you can have that you know ecosystem restored you know for the future it's going to continually um, provide those benefits so i would just say that's another one that's really exciting to to get people involved in cool well so you know one question that we try to ask all of our guests uh on the blue economy podcast here um from your perspective what do you see as i guess the most exciting opportunity in and around the ocean right now and not necessarily not necessarily the grants that you're doing or racing, but uh, you know, like, like, I guess what's the biggest opportunity uh, with the ocean right now? Uh, for me, it's just, uh, it's a continuation of the, how important the ocean actually is from an awareness standpoint. We, so much of the global economy depends on the ocean. I mean, the news was dominated by a ship being sideways in a canal for a week and it, it it's going to have a knockdown effect on, on the economy for a year. And that that's just one tiny example of what 
we actually rely on from the ocean. And I think Rhode Island is uniquely positioned because we are the ocean state. It's something that has defined our characteristic forever. Um, and it's not just fisheries and it's not just science and it's not just recreation. It, it's so many different things that um, have a big impact. And the more we are <laughs> aware of that, the better we can take care of it and the better our long-term future is. So I, I think the awareness side and getting more of uh, the population as a whole to engage with the ocean, which is where the opportunities in like public school systems, you know, it's, it can't be the playground for only a few people because we are all impacted by it. Um, so that, that's my personal opinion on where those opportunities lie. Michelle, your turn. <laughs> I think there's so much exciting stuff um, when it comes to the blue economy. There's so many new like market opportunities, I think, for new ideas, especially as it relates to like regenerative farming, you know, re regenerative ocean farming or circular economy solutions. Like there's just this whole new market, a new way that it, entrepreneurs, innovators can create, uh, you know, like just new, new products and new systems and new ideas, which is really exciting. I'm also really excited to see that like nature-based solutions are becoming more and more popular and being more accepted as, you know, like an actual alternative. So not always trying to control, you know, like our coastal ecosystems, but recognizing that you know, if we restore coastal ecosystems, there are tourism benefits, there are fisheries benefits, there's like so many um, community benefits to it that um, is exciting. So, and of course, in this region, offshore wind energy is another huge, um, you know, uh, exciting opportunity. It's, I worked on that for many years before coming to 11th Hour Racing, and it's exciting to see offshore wind, you know, growing and, and continuing to take shape in this region. So that'll be exciting to see. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Blue Economy Podcast presented by Rhode Island, the Ocean State. And thanks again to Rob and Michelle from 11th Hour Racing for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to learn more about us, catch up on past episodes or shoot us a note with your comments, head to www.blueeconomypodcast.com or look us up on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. From beautiful Providence, Rhode Island, the greatest small city in the world, I'm your host, David Hirschman. Thanks for listening.